Good morning, ECC. I don't know what your morning was like, but it was pretty hectic around here. We, uh, I was so proud of our team, not just those who were here uh, on staff, but those who flew from all corners of the earth to prepare to actually have the service outside in the parking lot. And then 10 minutes later, or 10 minutes after 11 or after 10, the uh, power came back on. Then they rushed it all back in here. So uh, I'm very uh, proud of how we came together. It was actually very exciting, but uh, air conditioning is better. So. so once upon a time, in an old Roman myth, we are told the story of the god Jupiter. And as gods sometimes were in those days, he had kind of had it with humanity, and so he, was, he had decided to destroy uh, humanity. But to give humanity one last chance, he, he decided to come down to earth so he brought with him, him uh, his son, uh, the god Mercury. So Jupiter and Mercury came down and took on human form, and they traveled uh, in the village disguised as travel-weary, poor human beings who were in need of kindness and shelter. And they went from house to house, and everyone mistreated them. Everyone turned them away, except when they came to one particular house, the house of a, a, of a an honorable but poor older couple named Philemon and Baucus. And Philemon and Baucus welcomed Jupiter and Mercury into their home, not knowing who they were, of course. And they, they treated them hospitably. hospitably. They, they served them a meal of cheese and fruit and eggs and olives and wine. But then Baucus and Philemon noticed something strange. They noticed that no matter how much wine they poured out of the pitcher, the pitcher never ran empty. And so they begin to suspect that maybe their two visitors were not mere mortals. And so just in case, they decided to prepare a, a feast, a meal fit for the divine to the degree that they could do it because they were so poor. So they took their one and only goose and they decided they were going to slaughter the goose and cook this meal. But the goose ran away from them. And they chased the goose around for a while and eventually the goose took cover behind the legs of Jupiter and Mercury. And that is when Jupiter and Mercury saved the goose and revealed themselves, their true identities, to their host and showed their gratitude to them. They took Baucus and Philemon up on a mountain where they could watch as judgment was poured out upon the rest of the village because of their refusal to show hospitality to the gods. Jupiter sent a flood that wiped the whole village away. And then Baucus and Philemon were allowed to become priests in the temple to Jupiter until their deaths. Stay tuned on that one. When we meet Paul and Barnabas this week in chapter 14, they're still on this missionary journey that they began back in chapter 13 when they were sent out from the church in Syrian Antioch. And Syrian Antioch has now become sort of the missionary hub of the church in the book of Acts, sort of a headquarters and on this journey, Paul and Barnabas will reveal to all the people they meet and to us a foundational truth about God and the, and the good news that we celebrate, which would normally be projected for you, but I'm going to tell you what it is anyway. It's pretty easy this week. God is patient and kind and wants to be known by us. God is patient and kind and wants to be known by us. Since last week's passage, when Paul and Barnabas were sent off on Paul's first missionary journey, they have continued their travels. They have been chased out of one city, Pisidian Antioch, 
uh, and um, nearly stoned to death in another city in Iconium. In both places, there were people who believed their message, and in both places, there were people who rejected, sometimes violently, their message. In N.T. Wright's biography of the Apostle Paul, he introduces this section in the book of Acts saying this, quote, Like much of Acts, these chapters are page-turners. One thing tumbles out after another, with Paul and Barnabas hurrying from city to city and stirring up excited and or hostile crowds. Many hear the message, some believe, others are appalled. People are healed, sometimes spectacularly. Local authorities wake up to the fact that something new is going on. Local authorities wake up to the fact that something new is going on. In this morning's passage, Paul and Barnabas make their way to the city of Lystra where we see once again that something new is going on, that the new creation that comes to us in Christ Jesus is taking shape in the world, that the kingdom of God is taking shape in the world. And there we read, again, in chapter 14, verses 8 through 13. In Lystra there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, "'Stand up on your feet.'" At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Laconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. Talk about whiplash. In the last two cities... They were chased out and nearly stoned to death. In this city, they're worshipped as gods. And of course, this sounds similar to that ancient Roman myth about Jupiter and Mercury. Even more so when we realize that those two gods also went by their Latin names. Jupiter and Mercury went by the other names of Zeus and Hermes. The same two names that are now being applied to Barnabas and Paul. The initial response of the people in Lystra is fear, perhaps, that the gods have come down among them again like in that old myth, and they don't want to blow it like all those poor villagers did before. And so they bring them offerings. Verse 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Paul and Barnabas tear their clothes because that was an ancient sign of grief within Judaism. Just as... King David tore his clothes in 2 Samuel 13 when he received word that his son Absalom had killed his other son Amnon. Or as in Matthew 26, 26 when the high priest, upon hearing what he perceived to be Jesus' blasphemy, tore his clothes. And then Paul and Barnabas, appalled at suddenly finding themselves smack dab in the middle of an idolatrous pagan celebration with themselves as the center of attention, they attempt to redirect things with the crowd to, to fix this thing. So to the Greek way of thinking, Zeus was the God responsible for creating all that is. Zeus was also the God responsible for sending rain and for bringing forth fertile crops. And and while what Paul says next when he speaks to them may, may soften things a little bit, we shouldn't miss the very strong exhortation and even accusation in Paul's words. We are telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. 
We are telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. Now, in my experience, virtually no one likes to be told that something they value or let alone someone they worship is worthless. It doesn't go very well. Stop bothering with Zeus and Hermes. Stop messing around with making offerings to gods that simply do not exist and can't do anything for you. Leave all that behind, Paul says. It's worthless. Then he continues in verse 16. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. First, Paul reassigns their misunderstandings about Zeus to the one true God, Yahweh. Second, Paul summarizes some key points of Old Testament understanding of the nature of God. He is creator, he is sustainer, he is provider, and he is the giver of joy. Again, the one true God is like their understanding of Zeus, only way better. Furthermore, God is patient and kind, and God wants to be known by them and by us. And so he has left testimony. When we compare Yahweh, Israel's God, with this picture of of Zeus in the ancient myth that we looked at a few minutes ago, there is a stark contrast. When, When Zeus, known there as Jupiter, came down and took human form, he did so as a last-ditch effort to see if he, if he was wrong about humanity, if there really was any reason to spare them. He wanted to wipe them all out. But Yahweh, Paul says, the one true God, Yahweh comes from the opposite stance. In the past, Yahweh let all nations go their own way. In the past, he let them go their own way. He was was patient with them enough to let them make their own decisions and choose their own way in the world, even if it was wrong. Even if it was wrong. But he has not left himself without testimony. He let them do whatever they chose to do. He was patient with them, but he has not left himself, left them, without testimony. His kindness has been revealed in all of creation, in the gifts of rain and good crops and plenty of food and joy. God has always been at work reaching out to his good creation, seeking to draw us back to himself, seeking to make himself known to us so that we might know him. God is patient. God is kind. And God longs to be known by us. In the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says something similar. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Or consider the words of Job in the book of Job, chapter 12. There, he speaks of God as one who has revealed Himself to and through the created world in Job 12. But he says, but ask the animals and they will teach you. Or the birds in the sky, they will tell you. Or speak to the earth and it will teach you. Or let the fish in the sea inform you. Which of all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. In April of 1961, Russian cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin became the first human being uh, in outer space, to, and, he, and, he, and he did that in a 108-minute 
orbital trip. And when he came back to Earth, there was a, a huge reception held in his honor and to celebrate what the Soviets had done. And at this reception, then uh, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev cornered Gagarin and famously asked him, Yuri, tell me, did you see God up there? And Yuri responded, no, I did not. And then this was reported all over the world as Soviet propaganda. When Billy Graham's wife, Ruth Bell Graham, was told this story, she reportedly responded that uh, Gagarin didn't see God up there because he was looking in the wrong place. If he had simply stepped outside of the spaceship without his spacesuit on, he would have seen God. By contrast, many of the American astronauts were people of faith and have said that um, what they encountered in space or on the moon did in fact testify to the goodness of God at work in creation. The night before splashdown in July of 1969, for example, Buzz Aldrin read from a portion of Psalm 8 via a live television broadcast. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. Creation bears witness to God's patience and kindness and goodness if we have eyes to see and ears to hear. Incidentally, there are uh, some alt alternate versions of this conversation between Khrushchev and Gagarin. Um, Yuri Gagarin was, in fact, a member of the Russian Orthodox Church. So one version of the story has Khrushchev asking Gagarin if he saw God up in space, and then Gagarin hesitates for a moment and then replies, yes, I did. To which Khrushchev supposedly responded, don't tell anyone. The heavens declare the glories of God. They teach us about God's patience, God's creativity, God's kindness, and his longing for us to come to know him and to walk with him. So in their attempts to redirect the worship of the people to the one true God, however, Paul and Barnabas do not have complete success. Verse 18, even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. And then those troublemakers, from back in chapter 13 and earlier in chapter 14, they're back. Those who expelled Paul and Barnabas from Pisidian Antioch, and those who sought to mistreat them and possibly stone them back in Iconium have made their way to Lystra. Verse 19. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. I'm going to ask, how did they win the crowd? They were worshiping them a minute ago. But keep in mind, Paul said, these things are worthless. I don't imagine it was too hard to win them over. They won the crowd over. They stoned Paul, dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derbe. So, so what fascinates me about the work of Paul and Barnabas in Lystra is that Jesus is never mentioned. Jesus is never mentioned. Even when Paul heals the man who is lame from birth, he doesn't even say anything like what we might expect, like the Apostle Peter said in a very similar story back in Acts chapter 3 when he healed the, the beggar who couldn't walk by the gate called Beautiful. There we read, Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. It's 
very clear. In Acts 14.10, Paul just says, stand up on your feet. That doesn't sound very Jesus-y at all. It doesn't sound very religious at all. Why is this? Why is direct preaching about Jesus apparently absent from this story? This is a bit of speculation, but just go with me here for a moment. First of all, if we look at what happened with Peter, he's at the temple. He's dealing with a different culture entirely, people who know the one true God on some level. But here uh, in Lystra, Paul and Barnabas are simply starting with these people where they were. He's starting with them where they were. This is, this is a new phase of ministry. This is a new frontier. So they start with what these people know. They know that Zeus is the creator God. And then they work their way out from there to introduce a challenge to their faulty theology. No, no, Zeus is not the creator God. In fact, Zeus is not a God at all. He's worthless. Yahweh is God. To be fair, after Paul and Barnabas go to the next city in Dereba that we are told in verse 21 that they preached the gospel there and they won a large number of disciples. So eventually, when they preached the gospel, they got around to Jesus. They had to. But they didn't start there. They started with where the people were. They started by realizing that God had already been at work bearing witness to his presence to his goodness, to his kindness in the world, even before the missionaries arrived on the scene. God is always at work before we arrive on the scene. Paul's approach to these early things goes back to something the early church scholars sometimes referred to, and although Paul would not have said it in this way at all, his argument fits nicely with what is called the two-book theology. The two-book theology, that is, that God has given us two books by which we may know him as we read them. Galileo spoke about this idea when he quoted from one of the ancient church fathers, Tertullian, saying this, We conclude that God is known first through nature, and then again, more particularly, by doctrine. By nature in his works, and by doctrine in his revealed word. God is known by nature in his works of creation, and God is known by doctrine in his revealed word, Scripture. So the two books then are nature and scripture. Paul in Acts 14 appeals to the first book, nature, as he evangelizes the the pagan people of Lystra. Why? Because there again, that's where they were. That was the only book they had access to, we could say. That was a way in. That was a gateway to the truth that is found in Jesus. Kim and I recently watched a, a beautiful documentary entitled The Biggest Little Farm. It's a, it's a fascinating look at uh, a couple, John and Molly Chester, who bought a 200-acre dilapidated farm just outside of Los Angeles and nursed it back to health. And it's the story of that journey. Nursed it back to health and made this farm sustainable and profitable. And this story is full of highs and lows, minor victories, major setbacks, joy and suffering. It's all a part of it. But over a seven-year period, as they work the land, as they try to bring it back in harmony with itself and into balance, it's a beautiful thing. It works. It works. Why? Because God designed the world to work like that when we work in harmony with creation. 
that is the first book of theology in Revelation. Does it automatically speak of God to everyone who looks at a story like that? No, probably not. It did to me. Once you move on after reading the first book and you read the second book, Scripture, well, what is going on in the first book starts to make more sense. Both books testify to the kindness and the goodness of God and to the fact that God wants to be known by us. Another way some have referred to these two books is by comparing God's general general revelation of himself in the world and in creation with God's special revelation of himself in the written word and in the living word, Jesus, who is the exact representation of God's being and the radiance of God's glory, as Hebrews 1 tells us. And in this first book from which Paul preaches, we learn that Yahweh, the one true God, is our creator. We learn that God is good and kind, that God is our sustainer and provider. We learn that God has left us with a witness to himself in creation because he longs to be known. He longs for us to enter into a relationship with him in and through Christ Jesus. How are we to respond to this good news of who God is and how God works in the world? First, let us look for God's kindness in the world. Let us intentionally look for God's kindness in the world, God's provision and goodness at work in our lives, and of course, in the book of nature. We can all name ways things go wrong in the world. That's easy. But let us look for ways and places where things go right, because that's true too. Let us look for places in the world where things go right, where it, is, where it is clear that God is at work, where there is reason to name and celebrate God's goodness and kindness in the world. And then, and then let us not just rush past that. Let us choose to sit in that and to reflect on that and to allow the beauty of God's goodness to speak to us in silence and meditation. Or, as Jesus puts it in Matthew 6, let us consider the birds of the air. Let us consider the flowers of the field and see what God has to say to us through the book of nature. Second, let's take whatever it is we see and sense and come to know of God in these things and let's make worshiping God a priority in our lives. Let's give thanks and worship God privately and let's come to this place and worship God corporately. Let us consider, as the song earlier put it so well, how amazing God is from the highest of heights to the depths of the sea. Creations revealing your majesty from the colors of fall to the fragrance of spring. Every creature unique in the song that it sings, all exclaiming, indescribable, uncontainable. You place the stars in the sky and you know them by name. You are amazing, God. So let us make time to sit in contemplation of all that is good and true and beautiful in the world. I mean, in this season, when so much is wrong and so much is painful and so much is broken, let's turn off the news for a while. Let's shut down our phones for a while. Let's pause once a day for a few minutes to consider God's goodness and kindness 
at work in the world. I recently read that Andy Crouch, who wrote a book on family and the culture in which we live in, and I don't remember the title of it because I'm winging this part right now, and he said what we should do is we should seek to detach ourselves from technology. His recommendation, I'm not, this is no law, one hour a day plus one day a week plus one week a year. Find time to sit in silence, to be detached and consider the goodness and kindness of God at work. That is not to say that we ignore what is wrong or unjust or broken in the world. Not at all. It is to say that if you and I are going to be prepared to bring the healing to our world, if we are truly going to be a part of the solution and not just a part of the problem, then we must give attention to God's goodness and mercy and kindness and beauty and love as well. God's provision, God's sustaining presence. And especially as God reveals all of these things in His love to us in Christ Jesus. For God is patient and God is kind and He longs for us to come to know Him. Would you pray with me as we close? God in heaven, we give you thanks this day for your goodness to us in creation. Forgive us when uh, so often we walk right by it, when we ignore it, when we take it for granted. But I pray you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear the goodness of your creation this day, this week, that we might learn something of you and your love for us, that it might direct us to worship and to further lean in to the gift of your son Jesus. We give you thanks for the book of nature. We give you thanks for the book of scripture. We give you thanks, O God for the living word who has come to us in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord God, that all of us would take a step further in this journey. I pray for any who might be watching or hearing my voice now uh, who do not know you, have not come into that relationship, God, that you would nudge them, that you would awaken them, that you would draw them and encourage them to reach out and to ask for prayer. God, we offer ourselves to you. We thank you for hearing our prayer. We thank you for the gift of your presence with us this morning. And we ask your blessing on all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.